You are about to listen to the world-famous Honor, Glory, and Bourbon podcast with Jacob Bourbon, recorded at Cedar Crest Studios in Orange, Connecticut. So sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart, sip your glass, and enjoy the show. So last week about this time, there was a guy who died in the woods not too far from my house. As the crow flies, probably a few hundred yards from where I sit right now. He took his own life. He killed himself. And he wasn't much older than me. He was a father. And all of a sudden he was gone. And I remember the night because I was working at the firehouse and I had to get home. And part of the reason I wanted to get home was to make sure my family was safe. There was a report of a man in the woods with a gun. And part of me said, let's make sure my family's safe. And then to be honest, I had this weird fantasy that maybe I'd find this guy and talk some sense into him or figure out why he was trying to do what he was trying to do. And I guess that's the scariest thing is sometimes when you think about where people are and, and how tough their situation is, when you really sit back and think about it, they're not that much different than us. I don't know this guy, but I know he's only a few years older. He's a father. He's a dad. He lives in a decent town. I'm sure everything on paper said he was doing okay. And he took his life right near where I live. And that really stuck with me. And then when I sit down to talk about this next show, and we edit and I listen to how much we talk about mental health, I think it really sucks that in this country, we have a hard time with people being vulnerable. And it's funny too, because... I just told somebody today, I said, oh, I do a podcast. And they go, oh, that's great. That's so 2020. And I don't think they meant to be offensive, but it was. And then you also think about, too, why am I doing this podcast? And you see there's a lot of great shows out there and there's so much content. And to be honest, it's easy to get content out. But even a simple little thing like this, every show takes about 20 hours worth of work. By the time you edit, because you triple the time you edit when you talk, I've got some volunteer staff members, you know, PJ and Justin who edit sound and they volunteer. We've got a guy by the name of Pat Kellen who does executive production work with us and some other volunteers. And just to get an hour and a half show out takes about 20 hours. But when I look at what we do and why I want to do it, it's important to me. And it's finally start to resonate now with five or six interviews that it's important to me because these are people I want to connect with. This is what I want to do to get close to people, to hear their stories. Not to be famous or do anything more than what we're doing right now. But just to get a spot where let's normalize the fact that people, and right now dudes, can talk about feelings. And as much as I 
eat a lot of content online with different podcasts. There's a lot of great podcasts out there right now. There's a ton of podcasts out there. So if you're listening, I appreciate you taking the time. But there's a lot of podcasts that talk about people being dads or people doing things in the fire service or doing things with a fraternity. But they don't talk a lot about growing up and what your influences were and how that played an impact into your life. And so to me, that's that that's the spot I want to be. Is talking about the impact that your childhood had on you and taking a look back and seeing what you went through to get to what your next steps are. And you'll hear me, and, and even today with Ricky, I use the word process many, 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 too many times. You'll keep hearing me say process, 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 because what does it take and what happened to you that you worked through to get to your next steps? Because that's important to me because I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm going to be 40 soon, and I want to figure out what process works for everybody else and how it doesn't work. And I guess that's just my little place of why we're sitting down, talking to a microphone, and thinking about life and what's next. Oh, by the way, I'm Jacob Rural. This is the Honor, Glory, and Bourbon podcast. Once again, I'm very blessed to have somebody who's extremely special to me, who I love more than anything in the world and would fight a lion for, or three rabid geese, Ricky Mallary, who I've known through the Sigma Chi fraternity for a while. And he is a dude who is big and strong and silent and doesn't talk about his feelings, which is why it was a godsend, literally, for him to sit down with me and talk about how he felt about things. And what I also don't mention, too, is I get scared shitless every time I do this, even though I'm a lot older than some of these guys, and they always say yes, but it's an exposure. It's a, it's a, you're opening a wound. You're having elective surgery, and they choose to do it, and I think there's a certain care you have to take with that. And I appreciate the fact that we both are able to open up and maybe that's the the product of being dudes or maybe it's the product of the society we live in. But every time I sit down, I I often think about canceling these interviews right before we do them. Um, But we always do them and it's, it's worked out. And Ricky was one of the biggest people that I thought would just not want to do it. But he sat down and he did it. And Ricky came with his... His fiance slash wife, Petra, who I also learned from that too. When we do these podcasts, we sit down in a room and we've got these big microphones with these big windscreens in front of our faces. And often I'm thinking about my next question and they're thinking about their answer. And it's a little dehumanized because we can't see each other's face. But you add a third person in the room. And again, I was a little nervous about having Petra in the room because here's his fiance. Is she going to tell him not to say things? But every time I'd ask Ricky a, a deep question, she'd be right there and encouraging him, shaking his, her head, just being you know, very supportive. And I think it helped Ricky get through the process of opening up. And it helped me to be able to make sure I was on the right track to ask, answer him, you know, ask him some questions. So... I really appreciate that to be able to look over at her face and see her understanding my questions and encouraging Ricky with his answers and really helping him open up. So 
that was a really neat thing and we we learned from that that's part of the reason we have pat kellen here now and we affectionately call him the fluffer because he's generally the third person in the room who we can kind of play off of and make sure there's another human to give human reactions to our questions and our answers and it's worked out very nice for us so as far as ricky goes he is a legendary guy in this fraternity because we've known he's been a combat medic and he's seen some stuff and Ricky's been a very quiet guy who doesn't talk about his stuff. And obviously I asked him on because I was going to ask him about that stuff and you'll listen. And he's got an amazing story about his childhood, which was just captivating. And it was so awesome to hear about how he was raised and everything he went through with his family. And that was a stunner right from the beginning that really hooks you in. But as we talked about his life in the military and what that meant to be in combat, he uh, he didn't really want to talk about it, and I could appreciate and respect that. And you also hear, too, through the interview, I had a few things, and I kind of try to encourage because sometimes you'll have people who say a lot, and sometimes you'll have people who don't say much at all. And Ricky's a very, again, quiet, strong, silent type, and he didn't really want to say much, but eventually he did. And you'll hear, too, where... He downplays what he saw in combat because he did a job and he got through it and it's on to the next thing. And then lo and behold, you look at a man and you see when he takes the time to ink words and the symbol of legends on his arm and on his chest, that must be very important to him. And I don't know, I ain't too bright, but I saw that and said, hey, tell me about this. And that's where we finally got to answering some of the questions I had about this guy named Ricky who... I knew had this experience, but didn't say much. And it was just, again, such an honor to be able to talk to somebody about their deepest feelings. And I've learned so much from that. And, and I've never been in combat. And I don't know what he went through. And I probably don't ever want to know. And I don't ever want my children to see that. But at least I can understand how to have a conversation with somebody who's done so much for, it's all cliche, but as a friend for a country and just to see the growing that he's done and what he's had to overcome. And I don't know, maybe it's a process where I don't know anything about this guy in the woods who decided it was his last day on earth. I'll tell you, I walked up there with my newborn son to try to find the spot. And I think we did for a couple of different reasons, but if nothing else, just talking to Ricky and trying to figure out when you go through your darkest days and you see things that no other human should ever see, how you work through that process and come back to just being able to live a day-to-day and, and figuring out what's important to you. So I appreciate Ricky's time, Petra's time, and, and how just very special it is that, that I can share these moments with these people. So again, hope you're enjoying the show. Sit back, relax. Take that special sauce that we call bourbon, fill up a glass, and have a listen. Thanks. Is it malaria or malari? Malari. Malari. Okay. Because that's the other thing I don't want to fuck up to. Um, and I asked a couple other guys. I'm like, how? Well, they, they were they were 50-50. And I'm like, okay, that's not going to help. <laughs> well, if you want to go full Filipino, it's malari. But yeah, I can't do that. Yeah. My body doesn't function <laughs> like that. So, your brothers and sisters. Uh, only child. Only child. And then parents or your parents, mom and dad, mom uh, and stepdad. Mom and stepdad. Gotcha. Okay. And have they are they still together still? Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a weird thing. Okay. 
because uh, they're not married, uh, but they have been together for like 25 years. Gotcha. And what's your what's your stepdad's name? Uh, Gary. Gary. So Gary's always been. Has he always been dad? Yeah, he's always been dad. Gotcha. So not married, but but they're like cohabitating. Like, uh, no. Okay. She has her own apartment, and he lives at his house. Gotcha. And yeah, so it's it's. So it's it's interesting. I guess yeah. your face is interesting. <laughs> so own own place, but like if he and and if he's still around, was it like I don't know? Would you play as a baseball, soccer, softball? Like the growing up, what did you? Oh, nothing. Nothing. No, I wasn't you, into sports. The ten. I heard you're a big chess guy. Chess. Did yes, you play chess as a kid? Yep. So did you have? Which I would. You'd never think because you're six one, two ten. Built. Yeah, yeah, you're let's, you're let's a healthy say, dude. Yeah, let's go with that. You're a healthy dude. Um, so chess guy. So, so would your stepdad go to like a chess match? Yeah. He, he would be the one that would always take me to tournaments. Um, even if they were out of state, he would drive, but still not living with you guys. Still not living with us. I mean, he would, after work, he would come by my mom's place. If my mom didn't cook dinner for him or lunch, he would never eat. So you could say he depended on my mom for most living needs, but he still, Lived in his own house. Always went to his house. Yeah. Now, would would you ever go over there? Like, family roll over there? Was it always just at your house? Um, on occasion, I'd say, like, Thanksgiving. Uh, rarely on some Christmas days, we would go to his house. Um, but it was mostly at my mom's apartment that we would celebrate. Then he would come over and, yeah, he, and hang out. Because, so, again, that's a very interesting situation. But if they're still together obviously and he's been around it, it seems like it worked yeah it works uh, it's yeah like i say it was, it was like a confusing weird situation that they have going on but it works for them was it was it confusing for you growing up or was it pretty i mean obviously when you're a kid you're kind of like this is the way it is like i know people who like if you grow up with like horses or elephants in your backyard or whatever like you're a kid and that's just what it is yeah. but so was it confusing I'd, or was it just the way it was i'd say it's just the way it was it was pretty normal for me um i mean i lived in the philippines until i was six years old okay before, before i i was born here okay and then i was sent to the philippines when i was uh i think it was three months old what do you mean by sent? Well, my mom has her brothers and sisters in the Philippines. Okay. So she, as a single mom here, uh, she wasn't really able to take care of me. Okay. Um, on her salary. So she decided to uh, hire somebody. Uh, I don't know if she was a complete stranger or somebody that was just happening to, to go to the Philippines, but she hired somebody to take me as a baby to on the airplane to the Philippines. Like... I'm guessing because this had to be late 80s, early 90s, doing the math. Early early 90s, yeah. Like you were absconded and just taken, I'm taking my baby, quote unquote, to the Philippines kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, basically. Um, now, this is coming from my mom. This is her story. This is her sure. S- how it happened. So the lady, she paid the lady like, I don't know, 50 bucks or something <laughs> to take me as a child to the Philippines. See, be- now you got to be like, oh, she had to pay $10,000 to just make no. yourself feel better. Oh, no. She threw a 50 in a case yeah, of Natty just- Light and, and, and I went. Yeah, that's it. It's all set. Um, so you got on the plane, you went. Uh, so when we landed in the Philippines, the handoff it sounds like a drug deal. You're like a football. <laughs> yeah. So the handoff was supposed to happen right at the airport, but apparently the lady that she hired decided to keep me uh, and just take me to where her house was. Okay. And and what my mom says her plan was to take my identification, my U.S. passport, my birth certificate, and all that, 
and give all that information to her blood relatives okay. who had their own baby. Sure. So if my uh, aunt and uncles didn't get involved, I probably would be somewhere in the Philippines right now. You would be a whole different yeah, person be, yeah. in the Philippines. The woman who took you, which I guess the other thing that pops in my head is, one, you have to find a person who's willing to, to do this process. So you're either yeah. very, very loving and, and, and trying to make this work, or you do run drugs and you're out of drugs, you're out of a baby. And I guess the give and take is, of course she kept you. She decided to take a baby to the Philippines who wasn't hers. So yeah. of course it went kind of wonky. So then did you stay with that family for a while or was it a pass off to your, your blood relatives? So I think they threatened to get the police involved um, or something to that nature. And she eventually handed me over to my blood relatives. That's where I stayed for with them for about six years. And that was aunt and uncle or? Uh, yep. Okay. Mostly uh, at her house. It's a nice little place in the Philippines. So uh, forgive my, my idiocy and, and, and whiteness and, and, I got to guess with the Philippines, it's either one to, to me. I, I have no idea. I know, you know, uh, where the country is and yeah. I can kind of guess and what you see on the, uh, the white people news, but decent neighborhood or was it, was it, how, how was your upbringing there? Because obviously single mother in the States is, is yeah. you don't have a lot of money, but, but how was it once you went to the Philippines? So, I mean, we lived on a farm. Uh, okay. We had one giant compound, uh, about two houses in that compound. And uh, we were surrounded by rice fields. Typical, you know, typical Asian. See, and that's uh, what I land. think. I'm like, oh, dumb white guy. Would you grow up in rice paddies and in, in the yes, Philippines? You're like, I did. yeah, yes. I did. It was a communal living, and like your mom sold you back to your family. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Nice. So yes, those those are true. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. So were there were there cousins there? Oh growing yeah. Up? Uh, entire family lived on that compound. Gotcha. Um, I grew up with my cousins. They were a year, two years older than I am. And uh, yeah, that's just where I grew up. And so I've got a six-year-old and I see him. It's funny because the thing gets me is I used to see like during the Industrial Revolution, 1800s, they're like, yeah, we used to have kids working factories making t-shirts. And I'm like, six-year-old. But then I see this six-year-old and he's putting Legos together and like how <laughs> smart the kid is. And you're like, oh, he could do a job if I forced him, you know, uh, you know, in a sweatshop. Otherwise, he wouldn't eat. He would, he would work all day. And it's horrible. But thinking about that mindset at six years old when you, you said you left at six, like if you grew up from a baby to six, the, you're not an American kid you're you're that's your home and and you probably don't want to leave yeah uh when my mom decided to take me back it was she told me i was just crying the whole time uh not willing to go and did you know like were you raised that she wasn't your mom or did she come to visit yeah she would visit at least once a year uh at least she tried to on uh whatever living she could make and buy a plane ticket uh but she she worked as a house cleaner for I want to say Imelda Marcus. Really? Yeah. Really? She was one of her house cleaners. And then when they uh, they were uh, forced to leave the Philippines to come to the United States, she took all her housemaids with her. Oh, really? So that's how my mom was able to come to wow, the United States. Wow, that's a really States. interesting story. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, again, you go, oh, what would your mom do, clean houses? And you're like, yeah, that's what she did. Not to be, you know, again, you don't want to be racially judging but but you know when you when you think of somebody that it, it's a job very hard working very dedicated um but the tough part is is she, not that she was or wasn't i'm not assuming but 
I assume under the table type of a thing. Like you put yourself in a position where the money may be better, but you got to do what people say and you got to shut up and do your job and, and you only only get what you can get, I guess. Yeah. The point. So I I would assume it was very difficult transition for her too, because you know, all her family lived in the Philippines. We say Um, she's Filipino coming to the United States to go, uh, you know, if I lived in here and it's not, fuck it, I'm going to, I don't know, even Texas. You know, Texas is a whole different country anyway. But, you know, if somebody said, oh, you've got to go to uh, Guatemala to do your job because you'd be like, nah, I'm good. But if you've got a good job in the Philippines and it's it's what's providing for you, I'm sure that's probably yeah. the choice she had to make. So she was here in the States then when, when you were born? Yeah, she was she was already here in the States. Okay. Um, that's, uh, when she was still with my biological dad. Okay. And, uh, I guess some stuff happened. He already had another wife in the Philippines, apparently. So he just up and left. Went back to the Philippines? Yeah. Without, gotcha. without even telling her anything. Really? Yeah. And do you know how old you were when that happened? Uh. Or if you left at three months? Like two, two months old. Wow. Do you have any contact with him? Uh, once. When I was... I was probably 20. Okay. I was on leave uh, from the army. Yep. And we decided to take a trip down to the Philippines, and I saw him for about a day. Now, did you decide to take the trip to see him or just see family, and you're like, hmm, fuck it, let's find this guy? Um, No, he decided to come see me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it was interesting. Uh, He didn't say a single word to me, though. Really? Uh, Yeah. So... I'm guessing, I don't want to say small community where your family knows each other. So he knew you were, you were in town then, I guess. Yeah. Uh, So he knew your family. He knew some of my family, um, but my family knew what he did to my mom. So they weren't really welcoming of him. Gotcha. Uh, So it was a very awkward situation. Um, You know, I would assume if you're a younger child and they introduced your biological dad to you, you'd be like, oh, dad, you know, but I have this, I've never met this man in my life. Uh, I grew up without this man. Did you know he was coming, or was it like I knew he was coming? It's just that I didn't have like any emotional connection to him. Sure. So he was just another guy to me at that point. You know, like you said, when you're a younger kid, it's probably, "Hey, this is a stranger," or "What do you mean, my dad? It's this guy." So that's got to be quite the let's say head fuck, but but he shows up, and 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 of course you don't have any connection to the guy, yeah. but. Um, are you, are you glad you saw him that one time to kind of take that off the table or does that not even mean anything? No, I, I mean, like I say, he was just another guy, um, no emotional connection. Uh, I see my actual dad, he's currently living in Stanford right now yeah. or probably with my mom. Um, you know, like that's my dad. Yeah. Uh, this guy in the Philippines, I just, just another guy. And maybe you don't even think about it. Maybe you don't even go there where you go, listen, this was just a guy who, you know, biological and and he had no other influence on my life. And that's it. I mean, but I guess to to me, if you if you try to get real meta on the thing and unpack it, um, maybe it's better. He he had nothing to do with you instead of being like, hey, I'm your dad. Let's go play baseball at 20. And you're like, I don't know you. Yeah, no, no. That wouldn't have been all right with me. I mean, I'm. I'm glad that he was gone for the entirety of my life, because um, you know my stepdad uh, Gary. Yeah, you know, he's a, he's a big influence on my life, mm-hmm. and uh, 
I took most of my direction from him. And now is is Gary Filipino? No. Okay. He's full blown Caucasian. Gotcha. Full blown white guy. Yeah. Uh, and where's he from? He is uh, born and raised in Stanford. Okay. So he's real fucking white. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, he he lived from Greenwich to Stanford, and everything in between. He's lived there. Yes, so that's again the Isle of Wight, yeah. of, and and so I grew up in in, in Michigan and in Indiana and, and went to Kentucky, and I've been places and and the Greenwich Stanford nexus of the world is is very and it's not it's not white it's it's very uber and I don't want to say privileged but but there's a big majority of that because people understand uh, and and I think maybe you can explain a little bit better but Greenwich and Stanford have normal middle class parts but oh, yeah. there's a lot of it that are very mansiony. Oh, look up yeah, in the hills. I mean, you have Bell Haven. Uh, you have the back country or backside of uh, Greenwich with all the mansions in that area. Uh, my mom's worked for many of those people cleaning their houses all day. Um, and does she still do that? Uh, she still does that, yeah. yeah. I mean, she's retired, so she's kind of working under the table at this point, uh, still cleaning houses. Uh, she has one family that she's still employed with, but they've been great to her. Um, just, you know, helping her out whenever she needs to, or whenever she. Was there ever any sense of, hey, my mom's a house cleaner, and I, I feel bad about that, or was it always just square in your mind where you were okay with it because she gave you what you needed? No, I'm completely okay with whatever she was doing. Uh, she brought food to the table. She clothed me. Uh, I mean, had no problem with it. What she was doing whatsoever, I wasn't ashamed of what she did. I I went to Greenwich High School, growing up, and. Yeah, it's a public school, but yeah, I was gonna say, tell me, tell, I know what I think Greenwich High School is, but I've never asked anybody. So, what is what is Greenwich High School? Greenwich High School is they get a lot of funding. Let's just say that from from a lot of people giving donations. Uh, it's it's they have a lot of money to throw around, so they they have it's a great school, um, great place to go to when you're a kid. Uh, you know how big your graduating class was. If, like ballpark. I mean, I, I graduated with thirty five. Oh. So were you three hundred like, or three thousand? Four hundred, five hundred. But uh, yeah, that, that school is. They just. It's a big school. So you you could pick your extracurricular activities uh, and whatever you wanted, uh, as long as you filled out your core classes. And uh, I decided to do cooking for all four years of my extracurriculars because you know, in my mind I was going to be a baker and own my own bakery after graduating. But they had a fully equipped kitchen in the sure. basement. Yeah, same I thing. Mean, Absolutely. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a big kitchen. Uh, they had industrial-sized grills and all that, um, whatever you needed. Uh, they had, uh, I think it was two theaters in there. Uh, a lot of four tennis courts, a uh, full size football field with, you know, uh, extra smaller practice fields. Um, so it, it was a big school. Was your mom pretty, was she hands off all the time and was like, all right, Ricky, go to school and do this? Or was she, I mean, I, I, I imagine my, my stereotypical Filipino woman is very driven, yep. but hardworking. So you your laundry went in the basket every day. You probably were doing laundry because she was working when you were when you were eight or nine. Yeah. Um. And, and so was she an influence who who kept you pretty? Because again, you're you're as a human, you're pretty squared away now. 
even pre-military is was that the influence you had growing up i i'd say it helped um you know she was a very strict uh she was a very strict woman um you know i had a bedtime until i was like 17 or 18 uh, when i turned 16 i remember she raised it up to uh nine o'clock from eight o'clock <laughs> so i was thankful for that so were you and i remember this when i was like eight but you look out and you're like fuck it's sunny outside and she's like ricky go to bed it's eight. <laughs> yeah exactly but uh yeah she was she was a very strict woman um i mean i, I appreciate her for for being that strict on me now now that i look back at it um i'm and glad then- she did what she did and if this, she's there doing everything, and, and I got to imagine, too, coming back at, at, at six years old and, and she's the one figure in the home, you, and there's two of you because you're not to get too dicey into, well, you were the man of the house. But if, if Gary's somewhere else and at night you're there, like it's it's you and her, yeah. and you're, you're going to listen to her because I see three kids. I'm like one kid can be like, go distract dad because I'm going to go get candy. Throw a fake tantrum or go, go, go shit yourself so I can go steal the, the iPads and we get them in bed. But when it's just you and her, one, one, there are no iPads then. And, and two, like you've got to have that bond, I would assume. And at some point you realize my mom is a hard ass and I'm going to listen to her or else she's going to not beat you or she's going to get me to comply um, because that's all we have. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly how she was. And then, so if Gary's still around, but not living day to day, how was his influence as far as growing up between that 8, 10, 12 high school age? Was that a guy you'd come and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Because you said he ran you around a lot of stuff and he was involved. The biggest way he influenced me was how hard he, he worked. Um, he usually, he worked the night shift for a store called Grand Union. They closed down. Uh, and they were taken over by Stop and Shop. Okay. But he was the mi- night manager for, for that store. He worked for them for, I think, 18 or 19 or 20 years, a uh, long time. Um, and he would work the night shifts. Um, and then, you know, he, he would always tell me, you know, if you're in a room working with a bunch of people, you always want to be the hardest working in that room. Um, I always want to be the first one to show up, last one to leave. Uh, he he was that guy, kind of guy, just working his whole entire life. And is do you feel that I see it in you? But did you feel that influence growing up? Where you're like, okay, this guy is this guy's pretty. And again, I didn't ask specifically. Did you call him dad? I did. I don't. I call him dude. Dude. He's the dude. He's the dude. Yeah. And so that's kind of your that's the moniker where you both know. Yeah. And and does he he see you like his his son obviously? Or... Yep. Yep. So, and you almost think. At least to me, when you say that and see the look on your face and the feeling it gives me, so I, I don't want to put shit on you, but like, dad's cool, and I hear dad, but when I hear a special like, you know, the dude, that's got to be a special bond between you two as well, because it's almost you chose to be here. This dude is there. He chose to be there. He yeah. he, he he likes you, you know. And I, I know that simplifies. <laughs> I, I know that simplifies it, but at some point, you know. So was there ever a time as you're going through high school and you do the normal fuck up things, where whether you not the wide range of, you know, a, a DUI or stole a pack of gum or, or stayed out too late. Like if your mom came down on you and said that, or maybe you didn't cause your mom was Filipino, you know, she'd kill you. No. Um, was Gary involved in, in like the discipline side too, in the conversations or was he, he was involved in the 
conversations, not so much the physical discipline. That was my mom's territory. Sure. But, sure. Uh, you know, he, he's more of the, uh, you know, I'm not mad at you. I'm more disappointed kind of guy. And that's the, always the worst. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. Like uh, my mom's punishments I could take once I got a little older, you know, kneel on some rice, like hard rice and like. Is that a real thing? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Is that a cultural thing? Like. I would think so. But, well, I mean, your mom had you do it, so, yeah, yeah it doesn't really matter. But. I mean, she was big on corporal punishment. Big. Are you... Now, obviously, when you when you look back with, with different vision, you go, okay, I got here, so that was okay, but, but would you do it differently with your kids? Now, I know it's a different time where you got to be like, kid, you can't tell anybody. Or like, you can't anymore. You can't anymore. Yeah. You really just can't. And we don't spank our kids. And I wouldn't. And I see I have two kids and, and one is older. If you spank him, you would wreck him. And the younger one just wouldn't care and you'd hurt your hand. Yeah. And and I, I never got spanked. Um, and, and my sister didn't. Our family didn't. It just wasn't in the, the purview growing up in the 80s of what happened with my family. And and I understand that, that now with sciences and things and people say, yes, you're making your kids afraid of you, which... I know my kids aren't afraid of me. They're afraid of my wife, but they're not afraid of me. And I'm okay with that. But there's also times where I tell them to do something and they just, they just won't. And, and you give that up, which is, which is okay. But I, I guess the, 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 the question is like, you can't spank your kids now because it's not legally allowed and uh, socially acceptable. But do you feel like that was something that you benefited from and it was okay? Um, let me think. Uh, when I was a little, when I was younger, you know, I was mortally afraid of my mom because you know she would do the hitting. Um, but as I got older, you know, she's she's probably four foot something. She's short, uh, lightweight woman, and uh, eventually, her hitting me just didn't phase me at all. It, it was like a fly. Would you have to act like it hurts so she'd? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ah, I would. Oh my god, mom! You're 16, and you're like, because I gotta go do something else. Leave me yeah. alone. So, you know, eventually, it stopped hurting, and I stopped caring. But uh, it was when the, the my dad, the dude, the dude. Uh, I like that. We should call him the dude from now. That's awesome. <laughs> it was when uh, he would, you know, talk to me and tell me, you know. I'm more disappointed than angry. That that really hit me. Um, and I think, you know, that should be the way to go when I have kids. If you, I have my wife here with me. If if you want to discipline them your own way, go ahead. It's up to you. They'll be more scared of you than they are of me. And it's, it's funny too, and I see both of my kids because if I'm disappointed, like, so I will, my dad his... To, to give a little bit more of a bigger perspective, he has changed so much as a human from when he was 25 and had me and my sister and, and where he's grown. And I'm, I'm so proud of who he is as a human to see what he's he's gone through and how he's changed. And with like grandkids, the first time my dad showed up at my, well, my dad showed up at the house and, and they, they live in Michigan. So he, he traveled and he showed up one day and, and Conrad was 40. He goes, oh, grandpa, what'd you bring me? And my dad goes, well, I didn't, I didn't bring you anything. And, and I went, Dad, listen, you, you you can't do that. Your grandpa now, you can never do that again. And he went, oh, fuck. Okay. And so now every time he comes, he brings way yeah. too much stuff. And so to see that growth and talk to him as a, as a as an adult, I, I, I see. 
But I, I, I guess where I was going was, so I, I guess the thing with, with, with parents too is I didn't, my dad was, was a yeller at times. And so I see myself yelling at my kids. And at the end of the day, um, Conrad, again, it was six, like I'll yell at him and he's like, all right, dad, whatever. And I've yelled at him a couple times where he gets upset. And I'm like, oh, I misunderstood what you meant. Like he's got that level now of if I'm yelling at him, he's either like, okay, dad, whatever. But like, I'll be like, don't do that. And he's like, no, I was just trying to bring you flowers or some shit. He gets upset. I'm like, oh, fuck, I fucked that up. <laughs> um, so I see myself yelling at them, but it doesn't do me any good. Yeah. It's me losing my shit. And then I, I feel bad and they feel bad. So I wonder too, with corporal punishment, where when you said, I got older, I just wanted my mom to be done. Like, did it really do anything other than all you tried to do is stop her doing that rather yeah. than stop the action versus the dude who's like, Ricky, I'm really disappointed that you uh, screwed up your grades and crashed the car into the river. And <laughs> Words at that point hurt me more than what my mom was trying to do. Um, and do you think that was kind of the, th- obviously you've got the foundation. I, I can see you, you see your mom is probably a rock and she's there and yeah. she's still there. And you got that, again, that foundation as cliche as that is, but with, with the, do you think the dude's influence where he's like, you got to think about this. You got to get your shit right. Was do you think that's a big influence? Is how you got here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, like I said before, his his views on uh, working uh, the hardest, being the hardest worker in the room. Um, you know, I tr- I try to follow that every single day when I'm at work. Um, even now, after his retirement, he's like, ah, oh, I'm so bored. Yeah, he calls me sometimes. He's like, I'm just so bored. I, I wish I was still working, or I need to find a job that can, you know, take up my time. But just relax, man. You you've been working your whole entire life since you were 16, 15 or sixteen. Just it's your time to relax. And relax to him is probably keeping his mind busy and doing yep. something. Now, how often do you guys talk? Uh, several times a week. You know, um, they live in Stanford and Greenwich, and we're all the way up in Groton, so it's usually call them after work. Now, you said as you were going through high school and you wanted to do some baking and, and not some baking, you wanted to be a baker, you wanted to be a professional chef and get into that world, which you, yeah. you had the passion for. And and you said, obviously, your grades weren't the best, which, again, I, I feel the same thing. And at some point, you decided the military was the way to go. Yeah. And uh, how'd that process work where you said, all right, I'm in. So well, and I'm sorry, how old did you enlist that? Were you 18? I was 17. 17. I did their early enlistment program. And, um, so I wasn't really informed on, you know, oh, you have to do this to sign up for a college or apply to a college, or you have to fill out this paperwork, stuff like that. I was very disconnected from my advisors in high school and whatever else was going on at the high school. Sure. Um, I was just doing my thing. Um, and so I saw everybody signing up, getting in, uh, to their college choice, stuff like that. And I just, I was just there, just living it day by day. Um, didn't do too bad on the SATs, you know. Uh, what, do you remember what you got? I think it was 1,800. Um, well, you didn't do too bad, and, and I'll have to check back this later, but I, I, I think 1,800 is a real fucking phenomenal good score. It's, I, like, extremely intelligent. Like, you're, you're near, like, could go to most schools you wanted to. 
See, I, I think I, I remember an episode of Saved by the Bell where Zach's like, I got an 1800 on my SATs and I can go wherever I want. So when you say to, like, again, if you don't have that influence and somebody go, hey, that's a really good score. And even now you're like, you, you don't know that's a really yeah, good I, score. I, I, that's a really good score. So you got an 1800 on your yeah, SATs. SATs. Um, and then I just, I didn't know what to do with that. So I just, well, it was four hours of my life that I had to waste to take this test. I'm not going to do anything with it. Um, you know, it, another big factor was, you know, I didn't know how student loans worked. Um, my mom has. Nobody knows how yeah. student loans work. Yeah, but the, the good thing is, is you didn't take them. Yeah. So, I mean, my mom is very fob. I don't know if you know what fob, fresh off the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so she, you know, didn't understand how any of that worked either. So and it I, sounds like if the dude was just a hardworking guy who didn't go to college or didn't yeah, understand, yeah. he was like, I don't, I don't know. Yep. Military is a good option. Yeah. So uh, my next option was, uh, you know, I would always, uh, we would always pass by the recruiting station down in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, I would, we would always uh, see it and, you know, um, and I would see it whenever we would drive by and it would, it just interested me. Um, so I decided to just call the number, um, and got in contact with a recruiter. His name is slipping my mind, but, uh, basically, I mean, it was a real quick process. Uh, I called him on one day and then the next day I was signing my papers. Wow. Had I had it over to do again? In my mind, I would have joined the military yep. to have that experience, but but maybe not the experience I thought I would have had. But from what I hear, so you're 17, and so this was, or before you graduated. Before I graduated. So what year was that? Uh, junior year. That was 2008. 2000, okay. Yep. And so you go and you say, hey, I'd like to see about this. And you're like, great, come yeah, here, sit down, sign right they here. They were uh, very welcoming. Okay. Um, I mean. In the Army, right? Yeah, in the Army. I mean, they'll, they'll try to sell you in signing. And now do they let you, and I've heard both stories where they, hey, you can pick what, what team you want to be on and what game you want to play, or they'll tell you one thing and have another. So how was that process for you? Uh, he was, I, from what I remember, the my recruiter was pretty straightforward. You know, I, I wanted to either be infantry or a medic. It's just weird because I was... If I wasn't going to do the baking thing, I was either just going to be a nurse, like all Filipinos. Um, so, like, I was trying to think of my future at that time. I, it, if I went in as a medic, you know, I'd already have some sort of medical knowledge. Sure. Um, but I was also thinking of making the military a career, uh, staying in for 20 years and just retiring um, from the Army. Uh, but, yeah... He was pretty straightforward with me. Um, uh, he, he even told me, you know, I'm 17 years old, so I would still need my mom's signature um, to finalize the paperwork. And I'm guessing she knew when you guys were close or not. So, <laughs> yeah, like I said, my mom was very fob. Um, I did talk to her uh, prior about the military, and she was n not for it. Okay. Um, I don't know, I don't know what it was, uh, what she had against the military or anything, but uh, she just, I guess all moms worry about, you know, their sons or daughters joining the military and getting killed or something like that. Oh yeah, you you got to imagine, sure. So she she was not for it. Um, 
but uh, I took the paperwork from my recruiter. I remember this. Um, I took the paperwork from the recruiter and I said, yeah, I'll get my mom to sign this. Just, uh, just give me a day or so. And um, my mom <clears throat> plays this uh, game called Mahjong. Which is like yeah, uh, the tile, yeah, yeah, yeah. the tiles. I get, no, no white person pronounces it right, but we, I know what mahjong is. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, she that was her favorite game to play with all her friends. Um, I mean, they would play from like six p.m. till six in the morning. It was ridiculous, but uh, she was over at our friend's house, so I decided to walk over there after coming home from the recruiting station, getting the paperwork. And, uh, you know, she was all busy with her friends, chatting it up, um, playing Mahjong. So she wasn't really paying attention to me. And you knew that was what was going on. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, yeah. And uh, I showed her the paperwork. Uh, again, she's fob. So can't really speak or or read English too well. So is that you guys would always speak in... in- yeah, she would always Ooh. speak to me in Tagalog, which is uh, one of the languages in, in Philippines. How many languages are in the Philippines? A lot. A lot. I, I couldn't tell you exactly. Is there a common language where... Uh, yeah, Tagalog. Is uh, the most common. She also knows Visaya. Um, I, I think she knows one more. but. And I get too far on a side note. People are always like, oh, these foreigners who don't know what they're talking about. But people from foreign countries know generally a few languages and can speak very fluently in many different things yeah. and tend to understand more English than they, they say because they don't want you to know they know what the hell you're talking about. But it seems that there's kind of this pervasive, what do you know what you're talking about? But so, so did you tell her like, this is paperwork for school? Oh yeah. I told her it was a school trip release form so that she would just sign it. And that's See, what, what <laughs> always gets me too is like, I forged my dad's signature because there was this, uh, I don't know if carbon paper is still a thing of which you know it is. I'm sure the military do inform you with it. But I found very quickly that if I took my dad's old signature, did carbon paper and, and signed the same signature, it, it would work. But I guess at the time you didn't think about it. And I wouldn't either. If you just signed your mom's name and handed the guy went, hey, she signed. He'd be like, okay, cool. And they would never have questioned. Probably not. No. I but, mean, I want to be as legit as possible. You know what I'm saying? Except if your mom went, I didn't know what the fuck I was signing it and started to yell at you. And, and, and well, you already Tagalog, signed it too late. And you'd be like, well, you did. And she went, no, he, he forged it. I didn't know. And they'd be like, you know what? If you didn't know what you're signing, obviously legally we can't this and we can't that. And, and they could have stepped back from it, but something, and it's funny. It's not, it's everybody's like the sense is, well, she signed it. So this is a legal document when really she had no idea. She thought you were going on a bus trip to the aquarium in Norwalk. And you're like, no, mom, I'm going to, where'd you do basic? Uh, I went to Fort Jackson. Okay. I'm going to Fort Jackson on a field trip. And, and so you brought the paperwork back yep. you go, Hey, so, I'm good. So, uh, after I got her to sign, um, I submitted the paperwork to my recruiter. You know, I kept her out of the loop as much as possible about the military. How about um, the dude? Him too. I mean, uh, you know, they, they, share everything with each other so if if i told him one thing he would tell my mom and that would, which again is probably how that works for so long and yeah. why that's great but to have it you know wherewithal not to tell him so yep so i kept them both out of the loop until probably a month out of uh my deployment to fort jackson fort jackson where's fort jackson south carolina okay south carolina 
So when you when you signed up and you said I want to join the military and you said I want to be infantry, which is again a whole and I I what I gather um, is when you sign up in the military, there's a whole gamut of things you can do. Yeah. And actual infantry combat on the ground is a very small portion of everything else that's running the, the, the military. And so you can do a whole bunch of different jobs. And if you qualify, you go, I want to go into, you know, logistics and intelligence. And when you sign up, you kind of know that, that you're going to be back end stuff. You may get deployed, but you can go into a whole bunch of different stuff. But you said, fuck it. I want to, I want to do infantry and I want to be a medic. Yep. And again, you talk about a nurse. So did they go, cause to me on the hierarchy of things, you can sign up for, I want to be, I want to, Again, it's 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 the army, but I wanna I wanna be the guy who fixes the tanks and runs logistics, or I wanna be a a, a grunt on the ground. Yeah. And when you sign up for the 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 not the lowest, but the least hurdled position to get into, which is basically infantry, and they go, okay, great. Or was there some sort of process? Because if you say hey, I want to be infantry, do they go, yeah, but maybe you should think about this? Or they go, great, sign here. So. They're always taking infantrymen. Sure. Um, recruiters are always trying to recruit for infantry, but uh, you have to take an ASVAP. Yep. Which is uh, it's like the SATs. Sure. Don't ask me what it stands for. I. I but it's the same idea yeah. of what can you qualify for? Yeah. And you took yours. I took mine, uh, and they gave me a rundown of all the jobs that I qualified for. And you qualified for like infantry um, and nuclear technician, and what'd you qualify for? Everything. It, it was a long list. You Let's qualified say, yeah. for everything. It was a long list. Um, and they said, yes, I did qualify to become a 68 whiskey, which is, is a designator code for uh, combat medic. Okay. So I was like, great, I'll take that. Um, and nobody talked you out of that? No. Nobody talked me out of it. From what I remember, the, the recruiter explained to me, you know, what a medic's main role was to uh, support infantrymen or wherever they were stationed at, whether they would be attached to an infantry platoon or be stuck in a, uh, in a uh, first aid tent. Um, and they just told me, well, as a medic, you, you're basically doing whatever job, the other, whatever platoon you're attached to. Sure. Like for me, I mean, I was attached to a mortar platoon, 11 Charlies. Okay. And, uh, you know, I got to drop some mortar rounds, some, heavy rounds um, while I also played the role of the platoon medic. So whatever, whatever uh, position I was in, a medic was just, you know, an added bonus for me. If you want to take it like that. No, and that makes sense. And again, as, as you know, I'll look at some of the parallels with you as a, as a paramedic and there's some things that are very similar and why you would do that. But so you, you decide you're going and you're going to be a medic and you graduate high school and you drop the, the no pun intended bomb on your mother that, hey, I'm in the military now. And <laughs> yeah, she, surprise. So she probably yells at you and beats you, makes you stand on some rice. And and, and did you say, <laughs> hey, no, you signed this and I, I'm in now? Or was it not? How was that conversation? Uh, Well, I told the dude and my mom at the same time, um, you know, I'm surprised I'm leaving for basic in two weeks. Um, there were some tears, there was some tears, but yeah, they were by everybody you're saying, yeah. cause tears, like everybody's got to be upset now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but they were, they were fine with it afterwards, you know, took a fine with it. Cause they had no 
choice. Yeah, eighteen. You say that. I was at two. that point. I was eighteen. Um, so uh, they were like, "Well, he's you know, grown up, eighteen. He can do whatever he wants now." The country serving my country aspect of it was a major part of it. Um, you know, uh, but the other side was, uh, you know, how how do I improve my position after the military? And that's where the military offered, you know, GI Bill or post 9-11 bill, which is a, a free ride through college once you served your time and completed your contract. Um, you know, you, they'll, they'll give you some money and they'll pay for your tuition to do a four-year program at a state university or a private university. And that's how you went to University of New yep, Haven? That's how I ended up at University of New Haven. So there's a self-serving aspect of I want to do the right next thing because nobody told you that. By the way, uh, 1800 is like the, the 83rd percentile of SATs. Um, I just checked. So like, <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it to you before after you've been through your you know experience in the military, but you were real fucking smart. But at some point you go, yeah, I want to do the next thing. I want to be busy. I see how hard my family works. And, and I always, from what I understand, the military does provide you on the back end with a lot of stuff. Yeah. But on the front end, 1718, you're ours and you're... You're doing what you, what you need to do. So, and, and that's what I see too. And I, I guess it, it's of note. So we talked a little bit to, today. We're, we're taping and, and we're not sure when this is going to come out. Today's the 4th of July. And yep. part of that, and, you know, I talked to you like, to me, that's something special as a veteran that I want to be like, hey, let's come and talk about your experience on today. And, and that's why I want to ask, like, when you, like, I remember as a kid, like, so my grandpa was in the Navy in World War II. And I remember walking out and they had... The little house in Indiana, I'd walk out with the flag and put it on the house. And like, it always meant something to me for like the national anthem, the fireworks. And not that you get choked up, but you're like, yeah, military. And like, I see my, my little one right around today and, and just um, uh, camouflage. He's like, oh, I'm in, I'm in the, you know, the, the, the army today or whatever he said it was. And that's why he was wearing that hard hat. Yo, yeah, yeah, dude, he's going around, he's going around, he's like, I'm in the military, I'm like, I think you might be, and I'm like, it scares the shit out of me, for the reason it scares oh, the shit yeah. out of your mom, but also I'm going to be like, alright, I'm reading every inch of paperwork you're sending me, so he's not going to slip one on me, Like, <laughs> but if he does, I'm definitely trying the rice trick, which I've never tried before, but if he does, I'm definitely doing that, but I remember thinking about, and, and nobody, I guess on the flip side where nobody talked to you about college, nobody ever talked to me about the military, other than the recruiters where I was... 22 23 and, and i've learned they like younger people just like the fire service does is because you're impressionable and you don't have bad habits and you don't go to the drill sergeant wait a minute because you're 28 and go you actually don't know what you're talking about and you shouldn't yell at me because you're wrong about this they don't they don't want that and so as i as i see them run around and and, and know me as a as a youth there was a a strong sense of of country that that I don't know that I was ever placed in a position that I would have joined the military for that. Because the other interesting thing, too, is you joined during the Iraq War. Yeah. That was going on for a long time. And, and, and when I would have joined, there there was post-Iraq 1 and pre-Iraq 2. But So you knew you could go to combat when you joined. Yeah. That was a very big possibility. And I was aware. Uh, the recruiter told me so. They did tell you? Yeah, they did tell me. Okay. Um, actively sending troops to Iraq and Afghanistan at that time. And I had no problem with it. Uh, if I had to serve my time overseas, then just let it be. And so how long did you sign up for? I signed up for a four-year active duty contract with a four-year uh, reserve after the uh, 
Because that's what they do. They, they, they get you for your end time and they give you extra back time. And so were you in for four then? I was in for four for the active. And then uh, I renegotiated my deal to cut two years if I joined the National Connecticut National Guard. And that's the other thing people don't realize too is there, there there's a bit of negotiation yeah. that goes on between what part of the military and what you're doing. So you go to Fort Jackson, and that's basic. Mm-hmm. And uh, 13 weeks. Okay. And then after that, uh, they ship you off to AIT or Advanced Individual Training. Okay. Now it's basic because I did 15 weeks at the Fire Academy in Connecticut, and that's one of the best academies in the country, but it's very... Um, it's paramilitary, so you get some people yelling at you, but at the end of the day, you get a nice dorm room, you get some food, you get to go out to the bar, and they can't touch you or talk bad about your dog. And, and so, and, and you said 2008? Uh, I went to basic 2009. So did you see a lot of, like, the people who came in with you with basic? How was that group of it people? Was, it was a mixed batch. Uh, just like you said, you know, you, you got a whole bunch of different people there from all 50 states with different intentions on why they joined. Um, uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was a, it was a learning experience, um, just meeting all those people. I mean, you're, you're stuck in a 60-man bay with 100 people in that bay. So you're all stacked nuts to butts, as we would say. Um, and you just get to know people, different people from different places. And did you, you still keep in contact with anybody from BASIC? From basic, no. And um, is that kind of the thing where you once you come in, it's kind of your first thing and then you do other things, so it's not really... Do, do you know that you're going on other things, so they're not really your friends, they're just people you're going through yeah. shit with? Yeah, um, at that moment, during during basic, it was just, you know, we're here together, so let's figure this out, let's work it out, uh, let's try to help each other as much as we can, um, and just get through it. And then, because we, we, we all knew, you know, some, some people were there for the active army. Some others came from their state's National Guard. So you go to BASIC and then you go to, would you say, uh, ATI? A- AIT, AIT for uh, advanced individual, individual training. That's when everybody gets separated into their specific job. And that was the medic stuff? Yep. Uh, that was in uh, San Antonio. Okay. In, uh, oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, San Antonio Fort. Ugh. That's when you know you've done a lot of shit. And Fort Sam there. Houston. There okay, we go. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So Fort Sam, and then you go there, and how long are you there for? Uh, Ballpark. Close to six months. For medic, so it's a full-on medic program, because yeah. you know I'm a, I'm a paramedic, which is a two-year yep. degree, but it's very, you know, it, it's the same but different. So I'm guessing, knowing you, you, you love the shit of learning medic. Oh, program. it was great. Uh, so they broke it up into two. It's the uh, civilian medicine where we did the whole EMT-B uh, program, uh, condensed down to three months, uh, and then take the NREMT afterwards. Sure. And once you pass the NREMT, you uh, move on to Army Medicine, which was the other half. Um, now, I'm sure the train's intense, but do they take a step back where you're not in basic and they go, okay, we're trying to teach you now, so we're more of a team and more of a, you're a valuable resource? Yeah, they, they thought of it as a more of a learning environment. Sure. So they tried, I mean, it would still, you know, a lot of yelling, but. So you graduate from, from Sam Houston for six months, and then are you then with the, the next unit, or do you have more training? Uh, no, that was, that was my training, uh, and then I have, they sent me off to Germany. Okay. 
to be with my actual unit. And what unit was that? Uh, that was 2nd Striker Cavalry Division. Okay. Uh, I was with 3rd Squadron. Um, so the actual striker units that they have are personnel carriers. Yep. And so you're with them. And, and so you go to Sam Houston and basically do they go, all right, you're on this team, go. And like individually, you 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 get added to that, that group yeah, of guys? Yeah, so uh, I was, once I got there, after process, in processing, uh, they introduced me to the platoon that I was going to be taking care of. Okay. Which was uh, the mortar platoon. And are, have those guys been together for a while? And yeah. And you're at it? The, some of those guys are in the same boat as me, just finished with their AIT or infantry training. So it's always kind of a progressive, almost, it's it's not a, a pro football team, it's like a college team where you always got guys coming Yeah, guys, on. you know, experienced guys staying and then new guys leaving. Gotcha. Coming in. Um, but they recently did a, I think it was a 15-month deployment. Okay. Uh, about, I'd say, while I was in basic. So they came back to Germany, which yep. is a big military base and all the resets. And so you come in. Now, how many medics are typically with your with, with the platoon, right? With, with the platoon, around 30 guys, just one medic. Okay. So I would I would beg the question, what happened to the other medic? Uh, they he... would, yeah, they would be either changed to a different platoon or okay. be sent off to another uh, station. Gotcha. So you come in and you're training with those guys in Germany. Yep. And how long were you in, in Germany? Because you, you eventually get deployed, right? Yeah. Uh, so we did a few months of training, getting us ready for deployment. And then it was 2010. Uh, I want to say June that we headed off for deployment to Afghanistan. Where were you guys stationed? Uh, so we were... Just south of Kandahar, which is a Air Force base that they established there. Um, near, so there's one highway on, in Afghanistan, which is a Highway One. Right. Um, it's where everybody travels on, how they do trade and all that. So again, to be clear, Afghanistan, you know, as everybody reads, in a mountainous country, and and there there aren't highways like you said. There there is one highway. There's the highway. Which is great because if you want to have the military move, you move on that one highway. And if you want to blow shit up or attack people, there's one, one highway. highway. Yep. And it's not necessarily a real big paved highway with a rest stop and thing. We're out in the middle of fucking no, it's, nowhere. Yeah, it's, look to your left, there's desert. Look to your right. Oh, surprise. There's more desert. More desert. So, yeah, it's one highway. Um now, when you guys went out or got deployed, were you a Ford operating base or were you in... Yep, we were, we, so we... We were sent out in the middle of nowhere to establish uh, what would eventually become a forward operating base. So we set up our uh, outpost there and just uh, told to stand by, protect the area, wait for uh, combat engineers to come in and uh, just build the, the FOB up. So you went there before the FOB was built? Yes. So what gets me is I've, I've the little bit I read FOB basically you're you're near a village somewhere you got a, a good point of a yep. Overwatch point over a village, but they put up a bunch of rock barriers and a bunch of nothing in the middle of nowhere, and you sit there and you'll patrol the village or walk around. But you went before you had nothing. Yeah. So we had our vehicles. We had sandbags. We had our those uh, collapsible barriers that you fill with sand. Um, sure. So we just built that up, um, about, I'd say, 200 
250 meters away from the highway so okay. that we can keep an eye on who's coming in, who's Checking coming out. On the highway. Yeah. A little higher vantage point, I'm guessing. Yep, yeah, a little ha- higher vantage point. Uh, clear, clear, clear grounds. Uh, we could see out for miles. Uh, it's very tactical. So from that very tactical, very nice spot out in the middle of the desert, 19 years old, I'm sure you sat there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Everybody left you alone, and you guys could suntan, and it was a nice, easy Oh, stay. yeah, it was So how soon till you, till you hit with contact with, with people realizing we don't want you there? It was uh, mostly indirect uh, contact, uh, makeshift mortars, uh, leftover mortar, mortars from Soviets, stuff like that. Um, we really didn't have a uh, organized unit come by and establish a firing zone on our position. The entire time you were there? Um, no. So after the uh, FOB was built up, they switched us over to uh, QRF missions, which is a quick reaction force. Sure. Um, so if a unit or a platoon uh, or a patrol was attacked... You guys are the next out. You're the backup. Yeah, You're the rescue team. We'll be the. We'll be heading out less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. We'll, we're on our way, and uh, we'd uh, reach their position, provide relief. And how soon after your your I guess in country did did you guys start doing QRFs and you start going out for that? About two months in, I believe. So you um, kind of get your feet a little bit under you and kind of yeah. get established. Yep. So two months in, we switched to QRF. We were doing um, patrol missions. Uh, security missions. Uh, we were we were basically the do it all platoon. Gotcha. Um, I mean, we were designated as the mortar platoon, but we had uh, battery there at the FOB, so they didn't really need mortars at that time. So you had the mortar skills, but you had the strikers, and obviously yeah. you're a medic, and you guys are carrying your your weapons, your your uh, M4s, M16s, your saws. So you've got a little bit of everything. Yep. But as QRF, you come in and try to do whatever you can. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, we would never, we would get radio reports about, you know, oh, this situation is hot. Um, uh, we're still getting indirect fire. We're still getting small arms fire, stuff like that. And then we just roll up into the area to find out what the situation is. Sometimes we get pop shots, uh, off of, uh, you know, somebody hiding in, in a berm somewhere, but we would just keep rolling. Sure. Um, we, we wouldn't stop for one guy taking pop shots at us. Yeah. So how how long until you got there where you really got into some stuff that was like, whoa, what am I, what am I doing here? And maybe not what am I doing here, but okay, now this is what 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 I knew was gonna happen. You know, it, it really didn't hit me that we were in country until the first time we received indirect fire mm-hmm. from mortars. I mean, it, I, at first everybody thought it was just the generator backfiring. And we saw a black puff of smoke coming up from the other side of the uh, the barrier that we built up. Sure. And we're like, oh, shit, that's indirect fire. We should probably go take cover or something. Sure. So, yeah, it really didn't hit me until that point that someone was out there trying to harm me gotcha. on a daily basis. And now did it progress, whereas a QRF, you're going into actual direct fire in combat? Um, At some points, you know, QRF, you know, you're usually called up after something happened, after something significant happened. Okay, so is that that's almost like as a as a and I was thinking about this with you as a paramedic. I don't go and watch a car wreck. I yeah. go after the car wreck. Yeah, happens. exactly. Yep. I don't go and and go. Okay, I'm watching the guy set the house on fire, or watching the guy get his arm get crushed. I go after his arms crushed, and maybe there's less an emotional attachment because 
I don't see the real fuck up thing that happened. Yeah. I see the aftermath and I can fix it. So as you go in for QRF, did you do a lot of medic stuff where you went after guys got hit? Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the guys that I treated um, were Afghan National Army. Okay. Um, I mean, those guys wouldn't wear body. They, they don't wear body armor. Sure. You know, they're not as trained as your regular U.S. soldier. Right. I mean, so you, they would mostly be the ones that got hurt sure. at that point. Is that easier? At that time, for me, I, I, I think it was. Um, gotcha. I mean, are you, I guess, so you're 19, you're, you're a medic, you're trained, you've done some stuff, you see your first few patients or your first dozen, they've been shot or, I guess, blown up or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and to me, when I see somebody who's not anything like me, and before I had kids, they're like, no, oh, kids will mess you up. I didn't have kids. You go to a kid who's hurt or killed or something, you go, yeah, that's tough. But now that you have kids, I'm like, oh. Wow. Yeah. So I maybe is it that same thing where it's a Afghan National Army where you go, yeah, he's kind of yeah. an ally, but he's on the other side, whatever. I hate to say it, but it, yeah, I mean it's it was, natural. It's, it's natural. It's like a, a training opportunity. Sure. If, if, if you want to put it, I mean that sounds pretty cruel when somebody's actually you know got a gunshot wound, but but still, yeah, that's what it is. Yep. So as you progress, was there a point where you started treating guys either from your unit or from from on the American side where you go, okay, this is getting pretty heavy uh yeah we, you know there's a few instances uh where i was just uh at the aid station just chilling at the aid station and then uh some guys would come roll up in a, a black hawk and we were the closest aid station we would uh unload and treat them there okay um and is that a whole different ball game because now it's yeah the aid station is more of a secure spot so it's it's like you know you could do more medical treatment Sure. But if you're out in the field, it's all t- slap on a tourniquet and get them off the X. Sure. And then, you know, it's funny you mentioned tourniquets because now tourniquets are in the States where we use that as a, a protocol for yep. stuff on a fire engine. That came from the time you were, you know, deployed. Yeah. yeah Army, it, the Army's real big on tourniquets. Right. So as you have guys come in and they're wearing an American uniform and, and does that ramp up the level of oh, yeah. fuck and emotions? Um, like, I mean, everybody... It, it, once they see an American uniform, it's games on. Sure. Um, any other uniform? You're doing your job. Yeah, doing our job. Doing your best. I'm sure you're hitting the right IV. If you're yeah, innovating yeah, somebody, course, yeah. you're, you're you're doing professionally, which you've been trained, all the equipment, all the skills. But when it's an American, I gotta imagine yeah, everybody has to be spot on uh, communicating. Um, I mean, you're trying to save a life, an, an American life, uh, a brother or a sister, you know. So. And then you came back to Germany? Went back to Germany uh, for another year before I was sent to uh, uh, Georgia. Okay. With a 4th Ranger Battalion. So you go back and train and you become a Ranger. Yep. Which, by the way, from what I hear, they don't just give out Ranger tabs. You have to pass something and, yeah. and physically and mentally so, you become a Ranger. Um, and that changes your, your unit too then and, and what you're doing? Yeah, I, st- I stuck with the 4th Ranger Battalion because they needed medics for okay. uh, the Ranger School. Sure. Um, so I did uh, medical... Uh, so I did medical stuff. Sure. I watched over the students, provide medical care for the students that were going through... The Ranger School. school. Yep. Somebody, chest pain, yep. heart problems, whatever. Uh, a lot of... Heat casualties. I was going to say heat, yeah, IVs. A lot of core temps were sure. taken. Sure. So I did that 
for the remainder of my time, which wasn't that long. I'd say nine months. Okay. For uh, I got out. Okay. Um, I was I was ready to re-enlist, but uh, uh, outside influences convinced me to uh, finish my contract and just get out the army. So parents, girlfriends, life kind of said, "Hey, yeah. I have enough." Do you, I, the, the, the low hanging fruit is do, do you regret joining the military? But the, the more complex question is, did it change you in a way that you, you wish it didn't? Um, cause I know a couple things when I, I know you don't talk about your military time and you've been very open about it, but I know you knowing you more, you, you learning that you've always been a quiet guy, but do you think that what you saw and did that affect you in a way you wish it didn't? I'd say it uh, made me less sensitive to the feelings of others. Yeah, I, th- I think I'd put it like that. Um, you know, if I see somebody having a difficult time, you know, I just, in my mind, it'd be like, you know, just suck it up. Pick yourself up and just keep moving. Sure. Um, I guess less empathetic to other people's emotions is what I'm trying to say. Um, but, you know, that was over time. You know, I, I learned to, you know, just suppress that, hold that back a little bit and then just actually feel for other people. And and do you think, and I think that's what you're saying, that comes from combat where you, you can't have those emotions? I would, I would think so. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I would attribute it to that. Yeah. So, and again, the easy question is: Would would you do it again? Knowing what you went through in the military, and knowing that you know, at seventeen, eighteen, you go, oh, you're going to go to combat. And you go, okay, great. I love that. Would you? Yeah, I'd say I would. Yeah. Um, you know, the time in the army was. Yeah, you know, I had a good time. It was learned a lot. Uh, discipline. Uh, I mean, I would I would definitely do it again. Are there things that still stick with you now that that what you went through where it's it's I don't know I I see things in me that 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 wear and drag and again like my my mom died when I was ten so I I see that affects me profoundly with with the way I interact with my kids where I go oh there's there's this and like not never being in the military but wanting that control i hear a bump in the night and and i i'm a gun guy so i want a nice big gun and a dog and i know if i hear somebody knock at the door past 10 p.m i've got my glock on my hip and i'm in orange connecticut so is that kind of made out (laughs) who really gives a shit but my wife's like what's wrong with you i'm like no we're gonna be fine and i guess when i dig way too deep on myself i go i'm controlling this situation now so do you find that you've had some sort of slider effect still now you know six eight ten years later where you, you see what you've seen in, in combat where, where it's affected you in that way, where. Yeah. Uh, what? Oh, she, they can't hear you, but uh, I would always tell her, Hey, when she's coming up to a corner, what do you do when you come up to a corner? Yep. Just check your corners, check your corners. Uh, every, I mean, it works for any situation. If you're in the supermarket pushing around the cart, Hey, check your corner. And you still do that in the supermarket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I tell her so every day. Still you, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for a while, loud noises would really bother me. Um, you know, 
I'd say a year coming out of the army, I couldn't do fireworks. Uh, that, that I remember like, one time here, like we did, uh, we did airsoft, and it was fun to me. But you're like, nah, dude, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. That and, was, and that was a smaller thing. But you're like, nah, I, I want to go do something else. I just don't feel like getting into that. And I don't think it affected you. We're like, oh my god, I can't see the airsoft rifle. Fuck you guys. But it was like, I got better things to do. Yeah. Um, I, I was in a pretty dark spot after the army for a few years. Uh, I'm just glad, you know, that uh, time's passed me. So what have you done to, to get past that? Because I went on a call at, at, at the firehouse the other day, and this dude, uh, we walked in, and he, it was 3 a.m. He burnt food on the stove, and, you know, he's like, I'm a Vietnam vet. Get the fuck out of my house. What do you know? He's got heroin bags on and this and that. I'm like... I'm sure you saw shit I'll never want to see, but 50 years later, this dude's slinging heroin on his couch at 2 a.m. eating Cheetos and drinking Dubra, which I'm not judging the guy. All I want to do is make sure he doesn't burn down the apartment, but he's dealt with that every day for 50 years. So what's, what have you done in that process to, to, to get past that? Because again, you know, like we've said, you, you've seen some shit and Americans sure died in front of you. And you know, there's a difference which people don't, don't see if rarely in this world i think and and people hear about combat and you know i did tours and i saw my buddies blown up as this and that but you go to combat and and you have people trying to kill you yep that doesn't happen here very often the stories of even not to to take down from from what you see in the news and murders and things when you walk down the street here as a dude nobody's actively trying to kill you for 99.999% of your days but you go to combat there are people you don't see who are trying to kill you, as I don't need to explain to you. So that's that's I'm sure changes the but like you know the structure of your brain, the way things work, and and you come home at 21, and you go, yes, everybody's tried to to kill me, and and I've seen bad things, and that carries with you. And again, you guys see that for 50 years. So how do you in in that time for the last what you've been out what seven years now, give yeah, or take, yeah. What what do you do to get what do you get back to that? I don't want to say normal because do you ever? It's yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you ever like not go? Like, do you still have nightmares about like shit happening? No, not anymore. Not from no, not mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, you know, I I used to. Uh, I mean, my ex would usually tell me, you know, I'd shift in my sleep. I'd punch, kick. Um, you know, I'd, I'd wake up in sweats, um, but I don't do that now, do I? Yeah, yeah. No. So, so has that been just a, a, you know, they always say like radiation is, is what time distance and shielding. And, and yeah. have you, what have you done to, to get there? Cause again, you could be strung on heroin and, and abusive relationships and drinking all the time. And, you know. As again, as a man, is almost thirty, you're, you're gonna make mistakes and, and still do things. But what's 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 your process been like to get away from that? So my main thing was to uh, stay active and stay connected with the people I knew. Uh, once I got out of the army, I right away I went to my mom's, uh, stayed with her for a little bit, found a job, um, uh, did some physical labor. And, uh, you know, I just stayed connected with the people that knew me, um, my mom, the dude, uh, some of my old friends from high school, just kept in contact with them, talked to them on a daily basis. 
went to work, kept my hands busy, kept my mind busy. And, uh, you know, eventually, I guess eventually through that process, I just normalized a little bit. Because you see a lot of people too go, you know, alcohol is an easy reach or, you know, you work through that process or you're just angry. And and again, I, I, I see like with these football players who commit like domestic violence, like this is a horrible thing, which is never acceptable. But you're like, this is a man who's been trained to just beat people physically for millions yeah. of dollars. And, and it's never acceptable. But you're like, of course he can't behave himself because his job is to, to crush another human being in the military. Boy, you know, you, you've been trained to check your corners or you're, you're, you're going to die. Or, you know, you've got to be locked in 24 hours a day. And even, you know, and... Just because it was, it was one one combat tour, right? Which not it was only one, but you you go for that period of time. Now for the rest of your life, you know you hear a bump in the night and you revert to your training of boy, I got to be hyper vigilant for this, and your brain's got to get rewired. That yes, way. yeah, you just gotta teach yourself to you know get back to the norm that you know you you're not deployed anymore, you're not overseas, no one's trying to kill you on a regular basis. Um, I mean it. Like you said, you can't really reach normal, normal. Sure. But you could, you could. Are you okay with the things you lost and the things you got from when you deployed for that trade-off where you lost that sense of, I guess, everything's okay. Um, And not even that, that, that you don't, you didn't even know what you had to worry about, but now you do, but you gained the things that you gained. Are are you okay with that trade-off? I would say so. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's taught me to be hyper aware of my surroundings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, situational awareness is key to, you know, living your life. Um, so th- that's what being deployed really stuck with me is that you, so back a few years back before, after I got out, you know, it's driving down the road, highway one. You would avoid small bags, uh, you know, potholes, because you never know what people filled those potholes or the, those bags with. In so, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, yeah. yeah. You see too many guys get blown up because they decide to run over a paper bag. Sure. Um, coming back here, you know, just swerving all over the road, trying sure. to avoid you know, small stuff on the road. It's just, uh, you know, dial that back, but be situationally aware of, you know, your surroundings. Um, but don't overreact just know that you're not gonna die and how long do you think that process is is taken and i'm I'm sure you still try to deal with that every day and go okay i'm gonna wake up today and i'm not gonna you know not say freak out but but you know as you progress and, and and learn like you know you always hear trauma takes double the time you've been through things and and has has that been a process that's that's taken that long is it still a a working process i mean i would have to say it's different for everybody um and so that's my other question too is do you you meet guys from your unit or that you're deployed with who are who are not doing well because that's got to be the other balance too is you go with a bunch of guys who become your brothers like brothers you're not always friends but your brothers yeah you call up some of these dudes and they're like they're messed up i mean that's got to be the other mental mind fuck of I went through this shit. It messed me up, but I'm trying. I got good family support. I've got a, you know, a significant other who's here. I'm, I'm okay. Quote unquote. Cause whoever, who's ever okay, but you're okay. Yeah. But you call the, some other guy and he's like, 
I ain't well, or he doesn't answer for six months. And you know when he doesn't answer, he's fucked up. Like, that's got to weigh on you, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, from time to time, I would, you know, check Facebook or get a phone call or a text message um, from a guy from my old unit saying, hey, you know, this guy died or, you know, he OD'd. Because suicide rates of uh, oh. veterans are exponentially high. Yep. So whether or not you see somebody die in combat from your unit, how many guys do you know who either OD'd or suicide or like? I'd say four, four out guys of, off the top. It's too many. Out of how many? Uh, Would you say 30 or? Yeah, 30 guys from my platoon. I'd say I think two of them. Uh, we lost to uh, suicide or OD. And then the others were just from that general unit itself. So that's the other thing, too, where if you don't have a, a mortar round or a direct attack and, and you guys make it back, in your mind, there's a sense of, hey, hey, we made it. But now you're back in the States and guys are struggling and, and, and the mental health in this country sucks for anybody. Yeah. Because I don't think we understand enough and it's a paradigm shift. The military, the, I know the VA struggles because it's hard with what goes on. As a, as a male and a macho guy who nothing should affect you in combat and you should look okay, it shouldn't affect you. But now you come back and you've had four losses from combat four, five, six years later that it seems like maybe it's kind of forgotten or, or affects you, but, but nobody calls it a combat loss. But really, maybe it's, these guys would have been fine. Yeah. Um, it's just very unfortunate, you know, and survive the whole year, maybe multiple deployments. And just to come back to what you feel like is nothing. Uh, you know, you feel separated. You feel alone. And then you die from suicide. You die from an overdose. And it's just it's just very unfortunate. Um, now, have you gotten to that level? Or have you been with your mom and everybody? My mom's going to kick my ass if I overdose. Or, or have you gotten to a level where you're like, man, this is, this is not a day I want to be alive. No, uh, luckily for me, you know, I had that support system. I uh, went straight back to my mom's place where the dude and my mom just, you know, they, they just a lot of support from them. Because um, they, they kind of have had an idea of, you know, what I witnessed, why I experienced, you know, of me telling them stuff like that from what they were watching on the news. So they, they were very supportive of me. Um, so were my friends, you know, they would. From high school, they would call me, try to hang out with me on a daily basis. Now, the last couple of questions I have, because we, we met through the fraternities with Sigma Chi. And so after you come back and you decide to, to join and you go through that process, um, how how did that help not help affect or be different in, in the way? Because as you know, I joined at, I was much older. And, and you were older and, and when you joined. Because when did you go? You were, what, 20? 24? 20, so 24 to 28, yeah. and in a fraternity, they call you an old man yeah. and um, going through that process. And again, there's um, Sigma Chi doesn't do much of my, I remember my wife going, are, are they going to haze you? I'm like, no, no, not me. And so you, you go through that, that process. Did you find some of that camaraderie or not? Because again, this is not, I, I'm not coming from Sigma Chi going, hey, it's wonderful. I know the, the local experience that I've had, but, but, did you did you have that connection or not? Yeah, I mean it's two completely different environments. You sure. Know? I mean, uh, the army you'd have, you know, your brothers in arms. Yeah, I mean they'll 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 have your back. They'll protect your life. They'll shoot someone for you. 
that's supposed to be shot. I was going to say, here you'd have guys who'd shoot somebody for you, but not for the same reasons. But uh, Sigma, Sigma Chi is similar. You know, I, I found a brotherhood um, apart from the army. Uh, it's exactly what I was looking for. Um, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of the, the guys that were active in the chapter what, when I was active. So last question I have, and, and it may be too much, but I got to know because I'm not a tattoo guy, but when you wear something on your arms and you see them, that's a huge part of you. So can I ask you what, what your tattoos are? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I got on my right forearm, I have uh, a memorial, I would guess, uh, for uh, Paul Kazupe and James Ayub, uh, two of my medic brothers that died in Afghanistan while we were, we were deployed. Okay. Now, were they with you guys or you just went through? Um, uh, so Kazupe was uh, part of a separate platoon. Okay. And then so was Ayub. Um, Yeah, yeah. Were they were they there deployed when you were there? Yeah, they were they were deployed with us. Um, and so I'm guessing they were incidents, direct fire, and then then uh, they passed down while you're there. Indirect fire, roadside bombs. So. Same route one that you were going up and down. Yep. And how close to you, like in the area, were they with with the unit where you were deployed? Uh, we we were in a general area. Uh, so somewhere. when it happened, you knew pretty quick. Yeah, it was news spread. Um, yeah, I know it's not easy, and and I get it, but I gotta imagine if 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 it's on your arm, I mean, you see that every day. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Did you did you work on them at all? No, no, I I didn't work on them. How long when you were in Afghanistan before before they were killed? Uh, a few months, actually, just uh, two months in, and then. Several months after that. So there was one and then the other. Yeah. Which has got to suck because you yeah. have... And, and who, who got killed first? Uh, it was Kazupe. Gotcha. And you guys, were you guys, you were, were your roommates with these guys or just every day in class? We were in the uh, headquarters platoon for the medics. Gotcha. So we were in the same platoon before deployment. I mean, you would see these guys every day. First formation, last formation. Um, you train with them. You'd eat chow with them. Hey, Ricky, how's your day? And yeah. right there. When you're there doing that and, and something like that happens to me, and you can't because that's why it's set up like this, I'd be like, fuck it, I want to go home now. I'm just done. I mean, but I'm sure you've also got to be there, you know, for the guys in your unit because yeah. you're the one medic. Yeah, that, mean, was, that was my main thing. I was like, if I'm not here, who's going to take care of these guys? In that process, do you ever go fuck am i am i next or do you keep that out of your head it's never it never really crossed my mind um yeah it's just never really crossed my mind it's just minds on the mission minds on the guys that are on that mission um and i'm sure for that reason it didn't then do you think that's what affected you when you got back was there time to think about that and go wow i'm i got back these guys didn't yeah uh, I mean, it definitely was part of it. Um, it, it yeah, at that time, it was it was hard, uh, you know, because you had nowhere else to go. Once you, we heard the news that you know, uh, one of the guys, our guys died. One of the medics, it, all the medics knew. They were 
uh, one would contact the other and then contact another medic. Um, we were all a pretty tight group and then it was pretty hard. Uh, we didn't have anywhere else to go. I mean, we, we can take a striker, take a trip down to the medics uh, area and just, you know, talk to anybody. Right, because you couldn't leave and go get no. comfort from the guys you were up yeah. close with. You were in in combat. You had to sit there and take it. Yeah, basically. But, um, I mean... I'm going to ask because I, I, I just... For the emotion, it was very emotional. When you were there in country, did you, did you allow yourself to cry right then when you heard it? Yeah, I did. Uh once we were able to get back to uh, the medical tent, mm-hmm. um, you know, we it was it was a very emotional time for all the medics that were in there. Um, it's, just, it's weird because you you would be talking to one guy, you know, and then he'd go out on the mission a few hours later, and then you'd find out he comes back in a body bag or he doesn't come back at all because they couldn't find pieces of him. So it's, it's just a very, it's, it hits you very hard. I remember we had a partner at work. His name was Chris O'Keefe and, and, and Chris was a little bit older and he had some, a lot of stuff going on. A rough West Haven guy, hell of an EMT and a fireman. And uh, we got the call one day that he, his son actually called and his son was so upset they couldn't tell what his son was saying but we went there and he, he had dropped dead on the floor of his condo and and like we talked about before I go to a lot of calls and I can remember one or two calls that were pretty pretty graphic but it's not you know you go to the young kid hanging or the baby who got killed it's not your kid and it's not your teenager and you feel for the family and everybody's upset and, and the family affects you but at the end of the day I I remember those. I remember what happened. I remember the one little old lady who was sitting there and she was dying. She went and held my gloved hand and, you know, 12 fucking years ago, 15 years ago. And he sits with you. And and with Chris, we always knew he was going to die young. He was just the motorcycle riding, Harley overweight, uh, just guy who, but we never thought it would be that day. And so we go there and he's um, Different color, you, you you knew he was he was dead. No signs of life. I mean, we worked him, and we called for another ambulance, a whole another unit. We had five or six guys working, just extraordinary measures, and we we did it for us to make ourselves feel better. I remember we we there was a police sergeant that came at the time, and he called, and we had a five car um, police blockade to Yale New Haven Hospital. They were shutting things off, cars, and it was just this this glory. The the best way you'd want to take this guy to the hospital, but he was dead half hour before we got there it had a profound effect but it was a natural cause it was a a thing and i was thinking about that before i talked to you like the the level that it's gotta sit with you where you were talking to a guy and and some of the guys left work that day at the firehouse you see one of your your co-workers you've worked with for years dead and they go do you want to go home you go, yeah i'm gonna go home to my family and at 19 you go okay your, your, your friend you just talked to died. And again, and, and if you're describing your friend died and, and, and we, you, you can't see the body cause there's not one. And to know that that's a, a pretty horrific experience. And they go, yeah, 
and back to work for the next six months. Yeah. I mean, that's got to have an effect that just, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was difficult, but, uh, You just, I mean, like I said, it it affects guys differently. Um, yeah, it sucked, but you we had a, probably eight months left to go, mm-hmm. and we knew that they weren't going to be the only ones. So we just had to, you know, regroup and just push and, on from there. And were there there more guys? Obviously, these are two yeah. of your closest friends, but obviously, you know. Uh, Paul, uh, Kazupe and A were, I mean, they were part of our medical unit. Yeah. So, um, but there were, there were more, um, not familiar with their names. There were parts of different, but they were there when. See a face, you know, of somebody. When you get back or, or through the process, did you know their, their families at all? Uh, yes. Uh, both their families actually visited because they erected a memorial down in uh, where we were stationed in Germany. Okay. So both their families were there. Gotcha. Um, had the... So how about the rest of the tats? I know you got the big one in the forearm. Uh, I see the, yeah, that's... the Maltese cross. Yeah. Or not the Maltese, but the, the first aid cross. Yep. So all my medical supplies. Um... And did you get that while you were in the military still? This one I did. Uh, this one was after... Uh, actually, when I was going to New Haven, University of New Haven, okay. I got this one done. Um, this one I got in, well, it's a, it's a uh, Filipino sun and star. So, and it has uh, Filipino flag colors. Sure. The stars have red, white, and blue for American. So it's a little like, sure. a little mix of both, Filipino yeah. and American. Um, and then you got flowers in the same arm too. Yep, flowers and the uh, national eagle for of the Philippines. Sure. Yep. Uh, got my got one on the chest too, um, and so I was super religious back in the day because my mom was a church going woman. Okay. So I got uh, praying hands here. Okay. Uh, with dog tags on them. And is that as much for religion as your mom too? Maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And then you've got the last two, or you got more? Yeah, so the other side on the chest here is a, a quote that I really like. Um, it goes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has passed the test, he shall receive the crown of life, which God has given to those who love him. When, um, did, when did you get that one? This one I got, I think when I got back from Germany. Back stateside. And do you feel like that was maybe that trial and tribulation that I, yeah, was the same? The main reason why, yeah, I would say so. Just, the quote just really stuck with me. Um, all that hard work, you know. It, it doesn't even have to be a religious thing. Uh, it could just... Any, any test that's presented to you, you know, you just have to work hard at it. But I think through it too, like at 21, 22, I remember at, at 20, 22, I was an RA. Year after nine eleven, and I got fired from my job, and I lived in my car, because there's such a dissonance at that age, maybe where you're trying to figure out who you are. And again, why I like talking to to guys from the chapter now is because you're eighteen, nineteen, you know what the fuck you're doing, but you're twenty two, twenty three. There's that first big trial of I'm not my parents, I'm out on my own. And then in your late twenties, you're kind of like, 
oh, I can't own a house. I do want to find a nice significant other. I'd like to settle down and, and go to Home Depot and have a nice yard and just be chill. But what, what when you talk about your, your struggles at 22, I'm like, oh, I'm living in my fucking car. I don't want to move to my grandma's house. When you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you're, you're in combat and you're dealing with these things that are just such a bigger trial than anybody else does. And not to say that my my stuff doesn't weigh with me as much, but but you're you're a horse of a different flavor where you're like, yeah, I'm I'm dealing with these things and and it's a lot. It's pretty amazing that, that everybody deals with something at that age. But when you go, okay, I ramped it up to this age. And I guess here's my other question then of that too that I'm building towards is your shit that you saw is super important and profound and very either damaging or life change to the point you get the tattoo that says this is made of who I am. Did you ever find yourself going, yeah, but I dealt with this, so I don't give a shit that you're worried about like you're out of beer money or I don't give a shit that you're worried about your parents got divorced. I saw my buddies blown up. Like, did you ever have that backlash? For a little bit. I mean, like I said before, I, I wasn't, I was like deaf to everybody else's emotional needs. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, Everybody deals with ways in a different manner. Um, you, you know, my emotional sensitivity could be different from somebody else's. Um, I think that had something a little bit to do with the military in my time in Afghanistan. But uh, I think I've gotten a little bit better. <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting a look from your wife. Has he gotten, <laughs> gotten better? A little bit, maybe. Yeah, he's a little bit better. Not not detrimental to anybody's <laughs> existence to the point of I, I still feel I have emotions. <laughs> I like that. I have emotions. I was upset that you didn't do the dishes. Not that he would do, but uh, you know, my wife says the same thing. So so what are the the, the uh, left? Uh, the other these tattoos? are just for fun. So that's uh, is that a, a heart like a very graphic? Yeah. So uh, West Haven Tattoos over here does uh, Friday the Thirteenth tattoos. Okay. So they do a a, a sheet. With uh, pre-made tattoos, and uh, they'll tattoo this on for you for thirteen bucks. So you got a thirteen dollar tattoo? Oh yeah, I got two of them. Oh really? Is that the other thirteen dollar one? So that looks like a a, 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 a bottle with a, a skull and like alcohol type of. Oh yeah, yeah. And and did it have any significance other than it's fun? Oh no, it's okay. just for fun. Okay. And of course, a good old Sigma Chi ankle tattoo. Nice, nice. Um, and then you. Which which most guys have and yep. and is pretty cool, and then you got finger tattoo. Oh yeah, my uh, oh wait, which one? Both. <laughs> so I uh, you have, have more tattoos a, uh, than you remember. Mustache tattoo from uh, my time in the army. Um, nice. My buddy decided to buy a tattoo gun, and uh, he needed someone to practice on because he's never tattooed before. Sounds very typical of the army. Yeah. We're bored on a Friday night. And my uh, was there any alcohol involved with that? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. My most recent one is uh, my little uh, ring finger here for my wife here. Her name's Petra. Now, uh, are you? Guys, I've heard fiance. Are you guys married now? Uh, legally, officially, le- or just mentally? Mentally. Okay. Are mentally. Are you going to get married? Uh, yes, legally, sure. <laughs> but mentally, we're we're married. Nice. Now, I mean. Uh, Oh, well, you've got the P, and then what's on? Oh, the the, uh, the crown. Yeah. Oh, you've so, got matching. Yeah, we got matching uh, ring tattoos. Nice. We thought that uh, having 
physical rings would be too expensive. So, so, so you've got the tattoo that says you're you're married, but you also put the initial just yeah. so you recall who you're you're married. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's so I can remember. I like yeah, I like that. That's tactical. So, awesome, Ricky. It's been an amazing trip, and I hoped it was going to be like this. And I know you're a quiet guy, and right now I feel I feel full of like. This has been so much fun. I want to cry, and I was hoping that you'd be this open because um, you're not and people hold you in a certain respect and they go yeah but ricky and i'm like ricky's always done me right and i'm like fuck he doesn't have to open up he could be like i don't really want to talk about that but um i'm i'm searching for something is the reason i'm doing this podcast just to talk about feelings and i couldn't be fucking more impressed with how open you were with talking about your feelings it's i don't ha- i'm gonna send you 70 dollars in my copay because i don't have to t- talk to a therapist today so um <laughs> But dude, it's 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 been a pleasure, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I love you, and I'm so proud to be your friend. I I think this is a uh, a great platform. This is a great thing that you're doing. If you want guys to open up and talk about their emotions, this kind of contained, confined uh, conversation between you and I is this is a great way to open guys up. And uh, I hope have, this... have you talked about your experiences before? Not to this extent. Well, to her. To her. And to I her. know you were shaking your head and yeah. agreeing with a lot of stuff. And it seems like you were impressed that he, he let it let it go. So you've never talked to other guys. No. Obviously, other guys. I mean, I, this is a very comfortable setting for me. Um, so it's awesome. It was, it was, I had fun. It's awesome. And it was great talking about, you know, my past. Well, listen, we'll have you back on again soon. But Ricky, thank you. We thank you for listening to The Honor. Glory and Bourbon Podcast. Down your glass, blow the candles out, and put your chickens away. Peace. Peace.